needed. In the first three chapters of Proverbs, we have repeatedly been confronted with the value of God's wisdom in the form of Solomon's teaching rooted in earlier scripture. God's wisdom has been presented metaphorically as both jewelry and as a treasure hidden in a gold mine. Lady Wisdom was presented as offering a profit greater than silver and gold. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Solomon had said. And we've repeatedly shown how this connects with Jesus, the man who embodies God's wisdom perfectly. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.3 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Since God's wisdom is so valuable, since Jesus is so valuable, what cost are we willing to pay to be in relationship with him? Can we truly say amen to Paul's famous words in Philippians 3.8? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. But then we must also remember from these early chapters in Proverbs that God's wisdom is offered to us as a gift not as a reward for our efforts, not as an object to purchase in a store. Yet, as we've seen, Solomon insists that our effort is necessary, that there is a cost that must be paid to receive God's wisdom. Likewise, in the New Testament, salvation is a gift. Relationship with Jesus is based on God's grace. And yet... Dietrich Bonhoeffer's most famous book is called The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he expounds the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. However, that title, The Cost of Discipleship, more naturally connects with another passage of Scripture, a passage in which Jesus challenges challenges the crowds to count the cost of following Him. In our passage from Proverbs 4 this morning, we're going to hear the call to acquire wisdom. And the urgency of that call reflects its value. And we may even find there a call to sell all that we have in exchange for God's wisdom. Jesus speaks similarly in Luke 14 about following him. Consider these words from Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able 
with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus' claim on our lives is total and absolute. Nothing is off limits. When we follow Jesus, no part of our lives can be left unchanged, unimpacted. Commentator David Garland writes, The demands mentioned here forestall any presumption that all discipleship involves is just showing up. The crowds need to know that it will not be enough to say that they were there, heard his teaching, saw his miracles, and ate with him. Jesus' disciples are those who change every priority in their lives and conform to his way of the cross. And so he lets them know what it will cost. Garland adds, Jesus does not hide his extreme requirements in the fine print, but proclaims them boldly in headlines. We are familiar with the starkness of Jesus' demand in verse 26, the hatred of family. We try to water it down by saying that the word hate merely means love less. On a different occasion, addressing only his 12 disciples, recorded in Matthew 10, Jesus did indeed use that language, warning of the inappropriateness of loving family more than him. However, here, addressing the crowds, he uses the strong word hate. To press the point, let's zoom in on one aspect of this call. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. Yet... Paul commands Christians, Christian husbands in Ephesus, in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do we have here an ethical contradiction in Scripture? Is this a classic Jesus versus Paul issue? If not, how do we hold these two requirements together? While this is a slight rabbit trail away from our destination this morning, I'll pursue it for just a moment. Let me make two brief observations. First, starting with Ephesians 5.25, the way Christian husbands are to love their wives is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Perhaps the little word as can bring illumination to Luke 14.26. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus provides the ultimate goal of discipleship. In Luke 6.40 we read, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Thus, the goal of discipleship for the Christian is to be like Jesus. So, if Jesus insists that his disciples must hate their families, is there a way in which Jesus hated his family? Granted, Jesus did not have a wife or children, but he did have parents and siblings. What can we learn from the way he treated them? Well, to summarize, when they misunderstood or opposed him, he left them behind. He pressed on in his mission, even though his family didn't support his mission. And beyond this, he redefined his family. In Luke 8, 19 to 20, Jesus was informed that his mother and siblings were wanting to see him, but couldn't get through to the crowds to reach him. In verse 21, we read, But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, which his family was not doing at the time. How do you imagine people in the crowds listening interpreted Jesus' statement? 
How do you think they understood what he was saying? I suspect that the question, does Jesus hate his mother and siblings, would have been batted around. So my first observation is to say that Jesus rejected his family's claims on his allegiance because they opposed or at least misunderstood his mission. In that sense, Jesus hated his family. He rejected his blood relatives as long as they remained merely blood relatives. My second observation has to do with the meaning of the words love and hate. Again, we may start with Ephesians 5.25. When Paul commands Christian husbands to love their wives, is he commanding them to feel a certain way about them? No. The comparison with Christ's love for the church makes that clear. Jesus gave himself up for the church. That's how he loved the church. And that's how Christian husbands must love their wives. He has... The word love has more to do with choice than affection. Likewise, the word hate. When Jesus calls his disciples to hate their wives, he has in view making choices that communicate that their primary allegiance is elsewhere. Thus, his, this hatred for family is a warning to the crowds. Each person must choose to follow Jesus for himself or for herself. So if a man in the crowd begins to follow Jesus, his wife might not choose to follow Jesus. As long as she refuses to follow Jesus with her husband, there will be conflict in their marriage. And the husband who follows Jesus must make choices that show his primary allegiance to Jesus. And that, at times, may look like he hates his wife or he rejects her. Thus, for example, when Simon Peter followed Jesus in ministry. For about three years, he left his wife and her mother at home. The neighbors probably gossiped about whether Peter hated his family. Now, what does this have to do with counting the cost? Every person in the crowd needed to understand that following Jesus required prioritizing him above all others choosing to live his way, even if parents, spouses, siblings, or children thought they should make different choices, especially in their culture, which was far more family-oriented than our individualistic society today in America, to disconnect from one's family, to blaze a new trail away from the home and away from one's family was considered to be shameful and shocking. It wasn't done. Thus, Jesus is showing that choosing to follow him may cost a person everything. But in doing so, he's also showing that choosing to follow him is worth paying that cost. He died for our sin and rose from the dead. You can trust him. He truly is worth it all. Notice also that Jesus climaxes his warning in Luke 14, 26 with the requirement of hating one's own life. The disciple of Jesus must reject self-preservation and self-protection as a supreme value. John Piper recently wrote on this point, to choose Christ at the cost of losing family will look as if you hate your family. To choose prison or execution over denying Christ will look as if you hate your life. To illustrate the point Jesus is after, he offers two brief parables. Remember, both before and after these two parables, the question on the table is why someone might not be able to be his disciple. 
The word able appears several times in this passage, and it is the main point. But in both scenarios of the builder and the king, the question as to what Jesus wants the crowds to get is a bit unclear. Let's start with the point, as he expresses it in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, Jesus' conclusion tells people that they must renounce all their resources in order to be his disciple. But the illustrations show a builder and a king questioning whether they have enough resources to finish a particular task. How does renounce all your resources fit with do you have enough resources? I think the answer is to recognize that the illustrations focus on deliberation ahead of time. The fact that you have to count the cost rather than focusing on the outcome. But in both cases, Jesus mentions what happens if the person does not have enough. The builder will be mocked and the king will need to beg for mercy from the opposing king. So how do we pull this together? Hate your family and hate your own life because the resources your family provides and the resources your life may provide are never going to be enough to follow Jesus. You can't be a disciple because of who you are or because of the resources you have or because of the family you came from. Instead, you must renounce it all. In other words, you must reject depending on your own resources in order to follow Jesus. If you approach Jesus thinking you've got so much to offer him, you cannot follow him with that mindset. You must recognize that your resources are not enough, and you must reject all other allegiances in order to follow Jesus. All other allegiances. You must choose to carry a cross. You must accept that following Jesus is going to be a life of tribulation and suffering. Count the cost. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. But, as Jesus says elsewhere, the cost you pay is more than compensated. And because he walks with you along the narrow road, you will have everything you need to endure all the tribulation that comes, not because of your resources, but because of his. And the destination is eternal life. Let me quote commentator David Garland once more at length. He writes, If the characters of the tower builder and the king in the two parables are assumed to possess the resources to carry out the contemplated tasks before them, the connection to the potential disciple breaks down. The New Testament makes clear that those who depend on their own meager resources and feeble powers are doomed to fail. The fight will be lost and the enterprise abandoned. Disciples can only depend on the power and resources of God that make them sufficient, despite their weakness. Jesus' parable suggests that even when one counts the costs and thinks one's resources are adequate to face the enemy, they are not. Disciples can only put their confidence in God. Conversely, when one counts the costs and thinks one's resources are inadequate to face the enemy, they are adequate because... One can only rely on God. What does this have to do with Proverbs 4? The cost of following Jesus is also the cost of finding wisdom. To acquire God's wisdom, we must give up everything. 
Turn to Proverbs 4 with me. We begin with the first two verses of Proverbs chapter 4, where we discover that the key to discernment is listening. Listening. Particularly listening to Solomon's spirit-inspired instruction. Look at verses 1 and 2. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. This block of teaching begins just like the famous Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which begins, Hear, O Israel. Solomon says, Hear, O sons. The call to hear is the call to heed, to listen and respond. The word translated instruction is the normal word for discipline. Thus, Solomon's sons and we readers are being summoned to submit to the training of God's word both the positive training that leads to godly living and also the corrective discipline that the Scriptures provide, whereby our false beliefs, our confusion, and our sinful living is chastised and corrected. Listening and responding appropriately to biblical instruction will result in us gaining insight, or more literally, we will know discernment. Or as many of us heard in VBS a couple of weeks ago, we will learn to discern. Growing in discernment, the ability to see the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and lies, comes as we listen to more and more of God's Word. The author of Hebrews chastises his audience because they are unskilled in the Word of righteousness, immature as little children. He wants to give them solid food, but they aren't ready for it although one could fairly argue that the whole book of Hebrews is solid food. And he gives it to them anyway in order to help them get ready for more and more solid food. In Hebrews 5.14, he writes, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Both in the book of Proverbs and here in Hebrews, discernment is presented as a skill to be practiced. Developed, learned, not as a kind of spiritual gift or a mystical intuition. Discernment is not based on gut feelings. It's based on concrete evaluation, comparison and contrast between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and lies. If you've ever worked in retail or in a bank, you were probably taught how to discern between counterfeit bills and the real thing. The most important thing to do is to study the real thing to become analytically familiar with the details of the true bill. Doing so enables you to spot where the fakes are different and how they are different. But most of the time, you also were exposed to some examples of or pictures of fake bills that were floating around in circulation so that you can see them next to each other and compare and contrast them. Growing in discernment in the spiritual and moral realms takes similar practice. Thus, Solomon insists that listening to his teaching as it is rooted in earlier Scripture and inspired by the Holy Spirit will enable us to grow in discernment. The word translated precepts literally refers to what has been received, a store of knowledge, a tradition passed down from earlier generations. And in fact, he's about to share some of that handed-down tradition in the next few verses. At the end of verse 2, though, he exhorts us not to abandon his teaching using the Hebrew word Torah, the word for instruction that connects us back to the authoritative teaching of the Mosaic Law. 
In verses 3 and 4, rather than point back explicitly to the Mosaic law, however, he instead provides the legacy of wisdom that he received more immediately from his father, King David. Look at verses 3 and 4. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Now, we'll stop there for just a moment. The words that will be quoted in the rest of verse 4 and on through verse 9 should be recognized as Solomon quoting David. Now, maybe he's poetically paraphrasing, or maybe this is a direct quotation of a poetic lesson that David shared with Solomon in his youth. In any case, Solomon highlights the legacy of wisdom here. King David apparently obeyed the famous instruction of Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7, the words that immediately follow the Shema, which we alluded to earlier. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The lesson Solomon here recalls from his father is not a quotation from the Mosaic Law, but it focuses attention on the need for Solomon to acquire wisdom. Why is it that Solomon, when he became king, asked God for wisdom rather than wealth and riches? David, it seems, taught him better. In the first part of the lesson, David highlights the key to wisdom, obeying. Obeying God's word expressed in parental instruction is the key to wisdom. Look at the rest of verse 4 on into verse 5. Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. David impressed his son with the absolute necessity of valuing and obeying parental commands rooted in God's word. Notice that David's not interested in a merely external conformity. David doesn't want mere behavior modification in his son. He expects his son to orient his heart around the teaching that he is giving him. Fatherly instruction. And he calls for Solomon's heart to hold on tightly to his words, to retain them and never let them go. But this isn't a call for mere memorization. The internalization of the word in the heart must flow out into outward obedience to the commands. This internal holding in the heart that then flows out into external obedience will result in life, true and lasting life. Later in chapter 7, we'll hear Solomon echo this same truth in his own words. In verse 5, David connects the wisdom and insight Solomon needs to get with Solomon's own words. And as in verse 1, the word translated insight is the usual word for discernment. So in addition to internalizing David's words and seeking to obey them, Solomon must also commit to remembering them and not abandoning them or rejecting them. But the most important word to understand here is the repeated verb translated get. Most often, the word refers to acquiring by purchase. It's the normal Hebrew word for buying something in the Old Testament. The following verses flesh out how this acquisition should take place. Solomon is here passing on to his son teaching that he learned from his father. This sets up the ongoing legacy of wisdom. The teaching of God's wisdom from God's word 
is something that parents are responsible to pass on to their children, as we saw in Deuteronomy 6. This is reflected in Paul's command directed specifically to fathers in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul indicates two polar opposites, two polar opposite ways that fathers might father their children. We must resist the tendency to provoke our children to anger. How might we do that? Well, seeing the opposite might make it clear. The word translated as bring them up was used just a few verses earlier, but translated quite differently. In Ephesians 5.29, Paul described how husbands should love their wives the way they love their own physical bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The word is nourish. So Paul commands fathers to nourish their children. Thus, if the opposite of nourishing that Paul warns fathers against is provoking them to anger... I suppose we might incite anger in our children when we attempt to discipline or correct them in such a way that doesn't nourish them. To discipline or correct them in such a way that doesn't feed them, that doesn't move them toward health. Or we might incite anger in our children when we neglect them, when we're too busy for them, when we're distracted from spending time with them. So how do we properly nourish our children then? Well, Paul adds the phrase, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I don't think that Paul simply means here to refer to applying the principles of Scripture. Rather, when Paul refers to the Lord in his letters, almost always, he is clearly and specifically referring to Jesus. And in this broader context, Ephesians 5 and 6 If husbands are commanded to love their wives the way Christ loves the church, I suspect here we should recognize Paul commanding fathers to discipline and instruct their children as Christ disciplines and instructs the church. How does he do that? We won't take the time to explore that in full, but I commend to you the letters to churches Jesus dictates to the Apostle John in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those seven letters take the form of discipline and instruction from the Lord Jesus. In those messages, we hear the Lord Jesus being gentle, but very direct, warning of the seriousness of unbelief and unrepentance while promising grace and mercy to those who heed his words. I have failed miserably in this area. I'm only just recently coming to realize that I have justified my parental anger in all the wrong ways. If I am to follow the model of Jesus' discipline of the church in my disciplining of my daughter, then I must set aside my anger. God's anger toward His adopted children's disobedience has been completely satisfied and set aside because of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. Thus, when He disciplines us, He does so without anger. The rod of discipline that the book of Proverbs speaks of repeatedly must be utilized without anger. The verbal correction that is so often necessary for children must also be expressed without anger. 
Even in our corrective discipline of our children, we must consciously seek to nourish them, to build their health, to strengthen them, not to break them. I am too easily irritated. Because of the cross, my Savior is infinitely patient with me. The legacy of biblical discipline and biblical instruction that we want to pass down to our children does indeed need to be based in biblical teaching and biblical principles, but it also must be shaped by following the model of Jesus Himself. Somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. I still need more of God's wisdom and God's grace. So, we must follow David's instruction through Solomon to get Wisdom, to acquire wisdom, to purchase wisdom. What does this mean? David is setting us up for another personification of wisdom as Lady Wisdom. So it seems that Solomon learned this also from his father. Thus to get wisdom, to get discernment, which we could view as a nickname for Lady Wisdom, as the personification keeps on going, is to get her as a wife, to acquire her as a wife. Thus, David envisions wisdom as a woman for whom a dowry must be paid. Remember the ancient cultural context. Marriage included a financial transaction. As commentator Bruce Waltke suggests, the dowry was not a real purchase price, however. Rather, it was a recompense for the economic loss which the family of the bride suffered through her transition into the house of her husband. In light of that, let's not get confused to think that women in the Bible were viewed as property, as a commodity to be bought or sold. That's not what's going on in Scripture, though that may reflect some views of the surrounding ancient culture. The Bible consistently elevates the value of women above the surrounding cultures. In any case, let's look at Proverbs 4, verses 6 to 9. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. These verses are structured as alternating between commands and promises. So I'd like to consider the commands together, and then the promises The pronouns, her and she, are used throughout these verses to bring out the personification. David is instructing Solomon and all of us to marry and remain faithful to Lady Wisdom. Let's look at the commands first. In verse 6, we have two commands. Do not forsake her. Love her. Back in verse 2, Solomon had commanded us not to forsake his instruction. This is now depicted as remaining faithful to Lady Wisdom not abandoning her once you've married her. In real life, what that looks like is continuing to obey God's word all the days of your life. And to love her is to depict our faithful commitment to remain devoted to upholding Lady Wisdom. In real life, this looks like remaining devoted to studying and living out God's word all the days of your life. Two more commands appear in verse 7, but the way verse 7 begins is tricky. The ESV says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. The 1984 NIV has, wisdom is supreme, therefore, get wisdom. The King James Version says, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore, get wisdom. 
The Hebrew is difficult to formulate into an English sentence. The ESV literally translates the phrase, the beginning of wisdom, helping us to make the connection with Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10, which both refer to the fear of Yahweh as the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. Thus, Proverbs 4.7 seems odd on a number of levels. Nevertheless, I think the point is rather clear. Wisdom doesn't come to us by accident or automatically. We must be engaged in the pursuit of wisdom. And since the word translated get is the same word we saw earlier as acquire or purchase, then David is reiterating that a cost must be paid. In a sense, David is emphasizing the need to count the cost before stepping out into the gold mine to search the hidden treasures of wisdom. The second line may be elaborating on this cost aspect, but it too is difficult to translate. The ESV has, and whatever you get, get insight. That's our word for discernment again. The New American Standard Bible has, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. The King James Version is similar, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Now, these last two renderings introduce an ambiguity in English. Does it mean get understanding alongside everything else you might get? Or does it mean get understanding by using everything else you might get? I believe the NIV is clearest and most accurate here. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Perhaps a more transparent translation would be in exchange for all your acquisitions, acquire discernment. Suddenly, we can see a parallel with another pair of Jesus' parables about the value of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, 44-46, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. God's wisdom is like that because God's wisdom is the wisdom of the kingdom of heaven. The last two commands in our passage appear at the beginning and end of verse 8. Prize her highly, embrace her. The word translated prize highly paints a vivid picture in Hebrew. It describes the act of putting something up high on a pedestal because it's of great value and you either want to show it off up there or you want to protect it from getting harmed. Is this how you value God's wisdom in God's word? If you were hosting a dignitary in your home, what valuables might you show them in order to impress them? When I was in my childhood home a few weeks ago, Eliana was interested to see trophies up on shelves in two-bedroom closets. They aren't particularly valuable to me, but she knows what trophies are, and she was interested to know where they came from and how we got them. Some of them were from playing on baseball teams in my youth. Some of them were academic and musical awards I earned in school. Some of them were bowling trophies. My mother won when she was a child. And others were trophies for prize-winning cows that my grandmother had uh, raised long ago. My daughter wasn't terribly impressed, which is fine with me, because those things don't define me. But what would it be in your house that would reflect your most central values? Perhaps it's your wedding photos, or even your wedding ring. Perhaps it's a prized coin collection. Maybe it's the old guns you keep stored in a safe. Maybe it's an old family Bible passed down from generation to generation. You know, those family Bibles, we typically don't carry those to church 
And we actually typically don't read from them, right? They're a symbolic treasure. Perhaps a far better indicator of what you truly value would be a well-worn Bible on a shelf or the Bible you're marking up in your study right now. The point is, put God's wisdom up on a pedestal in your life, not merely as a dust-collecting trophy in a closet, but have God's wisdom shaping your daily life, your choices. That's what David is after here. He adds at the end of verse 8 that we must embrace her. He's not describing a gentle side hug. In Proverbs 5, Solomon will use this same word to describe a sexual embrace. And the term shows up a few times in the Song of Songs. Thus, David is here encouraging us to get intimate with Lady Wisdom. This is an invitation to seek to know God's wisdom in God's Word as well as or better than you know your spouse. This is an encouragement to study the Bible diligently, to peel back its layers, to seek to go deeper, to draw out all that it has to offer to you. With each of these commands, David provides several promises. And these promises are intended to motivate us to pursue obedience to the commands. So how does he motivate us? Back in verse 6, we find two promises attached to the two commands. She will keep you and she will guard you. These are essentially synonymous. This is a promise of protection. We heard Solomon highlighting the protective power of God's wisdom in chapter 2. That's what David depicts here. But he casts it in the poetic terms of marriage. Now, we tend to think of the husband as carrying the responsibility for protecting the wife, the home, and the family. And that is the primary line of Scripture. However, there is a protective role spoken of explicitly for the wife. Or at least there is one place in Scripture where a mutual responsibility of protection is laid upon both husband and wife for each other. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul commands husbands and wives to not deprive one another of sexual pleasure permanently so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. As you may recall, in the middle of that verse, Paul does allow for a temporary agreed-upon season of abstaining from sexual engagement for the the purpose of focused prayer. Nevertheless, the point Paul is making is to encourage Christian spouses, both husband and wife, to pursue sexual intimacy together because doing so provides a protective measure against sexual sin, temptations to sexual sin. That is true for both husbands and wives. I'm going to spell this out. Maybe I don't have to, but I'm going to. Husbands, pleasing your wives sexually is a God-intended way of providing protection for your wife from her giving in to temptation to sexual sin. Wives, pleasing your husbands sexually is a God-ordained way of protecting your husbands from giving in to temptations to sexual sin. Now, having said that, it's no guarantee, and it's also not the only protective measure men and women should be utilizing against temptations to sexual sin. 
All of that to say, as a total aside, back to David and Solomon here, David isn't actually running against the biblical grain when he speaks of Lady Wisdom's wifely ability and responsibility to protect those who marry her. But this is metaphor. This is figurative. So what does it mean in real life? One commentator summarizes, well, we misunderstand this metaphor if we assume that this watching brings protection from all life's ills, as if wisdom were some guardian angel. Rather, wisdom protects her charges from stumbling into ways of life that bring harm to self and others. Thus, the idea is that living according to God's wisdom, as revealed in Scripture, will keep you from, will keep you moving in the right direction, will protect you from God's judgment, and will enable you to endure successfully whatever suffering you may experience in life. That's the kind of protection David promises here to those who refuse to abandon Lady Wisdom and commit to loving her all the days of their lives. In verse 8, we find two more promises. She will exalt you. She will honor you. The commands here had us prizing Lady Wisdom, elevating her on a pedestal, and seeking to know Lady Wisdom intimately, embracing her and refusing to let go. Thus, when we put God's wisdom up on a pedestal, she lifts us up too. Commentator John Kitchen writes, when you lift high wisdom, it pulls you up with it. When you attempt to lift yourself high, you will be brought low. If, however, you concentrate not on exalting yourself, but placing wisdom high and to the forefront of all you do, then you also shall be lifted up and honored. Following God's wisdom doesn't always lead to honor from the world. In fact, our society tends to frown upon those who follow biblical ethics. Nevertheless, the promise stands. Who is it that will honor us or glorify us? God. God is the one who promises to exalt us. It's His verdict over our lives that we should care about the most. In verse 9, David presents only promises to close out this unit. Look at verse 9 again. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. In light of the marital imagery, it's likely that David is drawing on ancient wedding customs. Either the bride or sometimes the mother of the groom would place a wreath on the head of the groom during the wedding ceremony. Notice here that it's the phrase graceful garland, or more literally, garland of grace, which we saw back in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 9. Thus, here again, we see a tight connection between God's wisdom and God's grace. Back in chapter 2, we observe the promise that God gives wisdom freely as a gift of His grace. Thus, we see God's grace as providing God's wisdom to us. And in chapter 1-9, God's wisdom was depicted metaphorically as this garland of grace, which communicates the idea of God's wisdom as it beautifies our lives, as an ongoing work of God's grace. Now here, in chapter 3, verse 9, God's grace is depicted as characterizing the reward for living according to God's wisdom. Thus, we must receive God's grace to get God's wisdom in the first place. Living by God's wisdom throughout our lives requires the ongoing empowerment of God's grace day by day and the rewards we will receive on judgment day for living according to God's wisdom, will be divvied out according to God's grace. The salvation of sinners 
is by God's grace from start to finish and everything in between. The final promise of a garland of grace and a crown of beauty or splendor does seem to be pitched out to the future, depicted as a reward for living according to God's wisdom. This got me thinking about the crowns of salvation mentioned in various places in the New Testament. I'd like to conclude our time together by reflecting on those. If the cost of wisdom is so high, the cost, if the cost of following Jesus is so high, demanding the entirety of our lives, demanding all that we are and all that we have, how do we know it's worth it? We could answer that question in a number of ways. The best way to answer that question is to consider the worth and value of Jesus himself. Pastor Ken got us reflecting on that a few weeks ago. But the scriptures also incentivize our following of Jesus with the promise of eternal rewards. Some of these rewards are depicted in terms of crowns. There are two crowns offered to every believer in Jesus, the crown of righteousness and the crown of life. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes, From a prison cell, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's some debate as to whether the reference to all who have loved his appearing refers to all who love Jesus' first coming or all who love Jesus' second coming. For our purposes here, I don't think it matters. The fact that Jesus has shown up or will show up, the point is, it's those who love him. It's those who love the one who appears. James 1.12 then says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. One final text mentions the crown of life as well. In Revelation 2.10, hear the words of Jesus to the church of Smyrna and to all other churches. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Notice the connection between James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10, between suffering and the crown of life. Now, are these literal crowns? Probably not. The Greek word is stephanos, which usually refers to a wreath given as a reward or an award, as a kind of recognition for an achievement or like winning a race or a competition. These are not royal crowns. So when the writers speak of the crown of something, they are depicting the something as an award or a reward. That's the point. So in 2 Timothy 4.8, after saying that he has finished his race, Paul anticipates that Judge Jesus will give him and all who have loved his appearing on Judgment Day the crown which is righteousness. As my former pastor recently observed, Paul sat there as a winner in that prison cell. All that was left was to receive the crown, the crown of righteousness. Thus, on Judgment Day, we who were counted righteous the moment we began trusting in Jesus, the moment we began loving Jesus and His appearing, will receive total righteousness. That is to say, we'll receive glorified, resurrected bodies completely without sin, and completely characterized by righteousness for all of eternity. This award is a gift of grace, but it is also connected with our pursuit of righteousness during our lives. 
the evidence of our justification will be the grace-empowered, incomplete righteousness we lived out following Jesus. And in connection with that evidence, the award will be given. There's a lot more to unpack from that tension, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Likewise, when James and Jesus speak of the crown of life, I don't think they're portraying a literal crown we're going to wear for all of eternity or spend time throwing it down at his feet, literally, forever and ever and ever and ever. Instead, they're speaking of the crown which is eternal life. Yes, eternal life is a gift of God's grace. And yes, eternal life begins the moment we begin trusting in Jesus. But eternal life is also depicted as a reward given on Judgment Day. We wrestled with this tension many times in the Gospel of Matthew in Jesus' teaching. When we see eternal life depicted as a future award, it might help us if we think of it in terms of resurrection life. We faithfully endure trials, tribulation, persecution, suffering, and death in this life, holding on to the promise of resurrection life that will never end. Lady Wisdom will provide what we need to endure in this way. This is why, in the context of James 1.12, we read these words in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The point in context is that we may lack the wisdom to properly endure the various trials God brings into our lives. And when we realize that we are struggling in the midst of a trial, to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. What we need to do more than anything else in that moment is to pray and to ask God for the wisdom to endure. We have access to God's wisdom because we are God's children. Those who trust in Jesus have married Lady Wisdom. Let's believe the promises held out to us here and let's get busy pursuing obedience to the commands of Scripture, both here and everywhere else. And let's pray for the grace and the practical wisdom needed to put these things into practice. Would you join me praying toward that end? Father, we again confess our neediness. Our lack of wisdom is not only evident in the choices that we make, in the ways that we struggle, but it is evident in our mere limitations, our limited perspective on our own experiences. We don't know what's going on half the time. And we certainly shouldn't presume to know what you're up to in our lives. So, Father, we pray for wisdom. We ask for it desperately. Every person hearing the sound of my voice is going through one of those various trials. Probably looks very different in each one of our homes and in each one of our individual lives. And yet you can provide the wisdom that each of us needs to meet those trials, to count it all joy, and to endure. So would you help us? Would you pour out your grace to us yet again? We thank you that you're such a generous and loving father who desires to give good gifts to your children. We can count on you for that. That's who you are. And so we celebrate that. We rest in that. And we pray for the power to keep moving forward. Would you forgive us for where we have failed to live out these things faithfully? Would you forgive us where we've settled content to be lazy? We've settled content to not pursue wisdom, to not do the hard work. Forgive us for our laziness. Forgive us for our prioritizing other things that are worth so much less. Forgive us for being so distracted. 
and help us to turn away from those things. Help us to see your wisdom as portrayed and taught to us in the scriptures as being worth whatever effort we must exert. And we will trust you for giving it to us at the right time, in the right measure, and in the right form. Thank you for pulling us together as a body, that we live out the pursuit of wisdom together, and that we live out enduring trials together. Help us to draw strength from one another and help us to reach out to each other to carry each other's burdens. Thank you for not letting us walk alone in this world. We don't have to be alone. Help us to not isolate ourselves in our sin and in our fear. Thank you for Jesus, who died to pay for all of our failures, both in wisdom and in righteousness. And thank you for the righteousness, the perfect righteousness that he earned, that he lived out, that he won, and that he graciously, freely imputes to us. Help us to live it out faithfully, we pray, for his sake, that he might be known. Amen.